The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Okay, so on the count of three, I want everybody in the room to shout, kids too, I want everybody in the room to shout their favorite meal to me, okay? Give you a second to think about it. On the count of three, I want everybody in the room, kids included, to shout your favorite meal. All right, so that can be Christmas dinner at Grandma's. That can be Easter dinner. It can be number six at Arby's with Arby's sauce. Whatever that is for you, I want everybody to shout your favorite meal on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. Did somebody say Waffle House? Did you say Waffle House, John Andrews? Okay, well, you should have said Waffle House because that is the correct answer. Now, we all love to eat. And if you've been around the Church of Greer Station and have heard me preach probably twice, you know that I love to eat and that I often talk about food as we talk about the Bible. It's because I think the Bible talks a lot about food. But one of my favorite memories from when the Markhams first came around was Casey early on said to Aaron, and Aaron relayed this to me, is Trevor sure does like to talk about food when he's preaching. And that is true. But mealtimes, I think we understand intuitively, are incredibly important, right? We pretty much meet uh, eat at, at, at every opportunity that presents itself. We use mealtimes for basically any and every kind of occasion. Right? You invite somebody over to your house, what are you doing? You're eating. You go to celebrate a birthday, what are you doing? You're eating. Your religious days, you're eating. To commemorate any kind of achievement, what do you do to celebrate that? You eat. Our group fun nights, we eat. We are eating creatures. And it's interesting to me that meals aren't just like gas station kind of fill up occasions for us. We understand that there's something meaningful that happens at meals. And so we we make a big deal out of meals, right? This is actually true across all peoples who have ever lived. All humans ever make a big deal out of meals on occasion. We understand that meals are an opportunity for something. And meals are also all over the scriptures. The Bible does talk a lot about food. You can probably, even if you're not super familiar with the Bible, you can probably think of at least one occasion where the scriptures talk about a meal, where somebody is eating in the Bible. I heard it said that whenever you encounter in the scriptures a song, a prayer, or a meal, you should pay attention because something important is taking place. And the passage that was just read, both in Matthew 26 and in the Jesus Storybook Bible, feature a meal. Feature a meal. The final meal that Jesus has with his disciples before leaving to be crucified. Let's look again at Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Matthew writes, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will we have us, where will we have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, by way of reminder, we're in a teaching series right now called The Crucified King, where we're taking a look at the final chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been walking through the whole Gospel of Matthew over the last several years, and we know that we've sort of arrived at the climax of the book. This is the money portion of the Gospel of Matthew. This is what Jesus came to do. And it coincides with the celebration of the the annual national holiday, the Jewish national holiday of Passover. It's the time of Passover. In Matthew 21, Jesus has entered into the city of Jerusalem because it's it's, it's time for all of the pilgrims in the surrounding regions to come and celebrate Passover together. 
This is the climax of their year, and Matthew, and in the Lord's providence, it works itself out to be the climax of what Jesus came to do. Now, by way of reminder, the Passover is a meal that's celebrated every year by the, the, the nation of Israel where they celebrate their exodus from Egypt. I have a picture up on the screen for us. We used this just a couple of weeks ago at our last family worship gathering when we talked about Jesus being the Redeemer. We talked about how the angel of death was the final plague that the Lord had pronounced over the, the, the evil nation of Egypt. And the angel of death was going to uh, kill the firstborn son of every home whose doorpost wasn't painted with the blood of a lamb. Whose doorpost wasn't painted, wasn't covered with the blood of a lamb. So every year, the Jewish nation, they, they, they celebrate the Passover meal because they celebrate that God passed over us, passed over us by the blood of a lamb. Or as Jesus' storybook Bible said a moment ago, that a lamb died instead of us. Here's another picture for us. This is a, just a depiction of what the Passover meal probably in Matthew 26 looked like. Now the Passover meal is given in Exodus 12. They're told to eat lamb. They're supposed to have unleavened bread. And it's funny if you read it, they're supposed to eat with their skedaddling clothes on. You know what skedaddle means? Skedaddle means to go somewhere in a hurry. In Exodus 12, they're told to eat with their skedaddling clothes. They're supposed to eat as if they're preparing to make a quick exit during the night. The reason is because they remember that the, the first Passover took place when they, they, had to, they had to quickly exit out in the middle of the night. And so whenever the, the people of Israel come together to eat the Passover, in some ways they're coming together to reenact what God did for them way back in the story of the Exodus. One way to think about this might be Thanksgiving. All right, we're going to talk about food again. Thanksgiving. What do we eat every Thanksgiving? Turkey. We eat turkey every Thanksgiving. And the reason that we eat turkey every, and there's, this is the only reason we eat it, because turkey is an, it's an unpleasant dish. Right? There's, chicken is preferable to turkey. Ham is better than turkey. Everything else is better than turkey. Cows are better than turkey. It's all better than turkey. Even vegetables are better than turkey. But we still eat turkey annually. And the reason that we eat this dry, awful meat is because in some ways we're attempting to reenact what took place the first Thanksgiving at Plymouth Rock, right? There's a sort of reenactment that we're doing every year. It's the same idea that the people of Israel are reenacting what God did at the events of the Exodus. The climax of this celebration, the pilgrims coming to town to celebrate, everything is building towards this meal, and it's the climax also of Jesus' ministry. Now we're told here in verse 17 that this is the feast of the unleavened bread. And the idea here was that to begin the ceremony of the, the Passover meal, they started with the first day of the, 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 the feast of the unleavened bread, where they removed all leaven from their house. The thing about leaven is you have to get leaven started and transfer it from uh, loaf of bread to loaf of bread to loaf of bread. And what they're called to do is to basically interrupt that process, to, to completely unleaven their households. Leaven sometimes is a picture of evil in the scriptures. So they're to completely unleaven their households and essentially start all over. And the Lord makes this point in Exodus 12. He says, as you're unleavening your households, let it remind you that this is a new start. This is a clean break. The Lord is doing something new. And Matthew shows us in verse 17 that this is the first day of the feast of the unleavening. Some alarm bells should go off in our head. We should, we should see that maybe something, maybe Matthew is hinting that something new is about to happen. Verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12, sort of like that picture we had up a moment ago. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus has explained to them time and time again that, that he is going to be delivered into the hands of people who will kill him. And then he breaks the news at the Passover supper that one of his followers is going to betray him. Verse 22. And they were very sorrowful. And they began to say to him, and one to another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, 
He who has dipped his hand in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. So the disciples are gathering around the table to eat their umpteenth Passover. The first Passover in, in these circumstances, but they've done this meal again and again and again. And Jesus tells them, Jesus knows, he's, he's the king over his crucifixion, the crucified king. He says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to be the person who delivers me to the authorities. The son of man goes as it is written of him. But by the very hand of someone who dipped their hand in the dish, I will be betrayed. And so the disciples look around at one another. Who could that be? And the response to me is incredibly interesting. They look around, very sorrowful, and they ask, is it me? Am I I the one that's going to betray you, Jesus? Now, interestingly, you know, Matthew has not kept it a secret that Judas is going to be the guy. Matthew's not kept it a secret that Judas is going to be the guy that betrays Jesus. So pretty early on in the book, you're given these spoilers that Judas is going to be the one who ultimately betrays Christ. And so the, the sort of narrative tension that you might expect Matthew to be building as he unveils who the guilty party is, it's not there because he's already told us. But I do think there's another kind of suspense that Matthew introduces in this story. Think about, the, think about what it would have been like to have been a follower of Jesus who's been told that your leader is going to step into crucifixion. He's going to be publicly put to death for the things that he has said and the thing that he's done. One of the things that I think about is, we can often forget, is when we talk about taking up this cross, we, we use this language rightfully, metaphorically, but for the disciples, it was a literal reality that these guys were, were going to be confronted with the potential of taking up a literal cross just as their leader has taken up a cross. Back in Roman times, if a leader was killed, they also killed his followers too for good measure, sort of like taking a full round of antibiotics. They want to make sure that infection is really cleared out. And so if Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified as the, as the leader of this movement, I'm going to be put to death, he's also inviting the disciples to consider are you willing to be put to death alongside of me by my name? Jesus says, my time is at hand. These disciples are confronted with a choice. Am I willing to follow Jesus even to death? All right, so the disciples are confronted with a really difficult situation. They're eating this meal with Jesus. He says, my time is at hand. It's about time for me to be betrayed. And the disciples are sort of wondering, do I have what it takes to be faithful to Jesus? Do I have what it takes to follow Jesus to the very end? Is it me? Could, could it be me? Could I be the one who outs and betrays you ultimately? In the previous week, the story that we saw last week, the beginning of Matthew 26, we see a contrast between the woman and the disciples. Remember, the, the woman of the city anoints Jesus with this very expensive oil. And we're told, as the woman is doing this amazing act of worship, the disciples respond by saying, you know, we could have sold that for a lot more money. This seems like a really irresponsible act. And we're intended to see this contrast between the woman and the disciples. And then the story progresses, and we're told that Judas, worst of the disciples, Judas ends up selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so we're given kind of this idea that the disciples are, are kind of clueless, and Judas is kind of the worst of the clueless ones. And it seems like a similar contrast is being introduced here. Judas is the betrayer, clearly. There's no suspense for the reader. But that's not even Matthew's main point, that Judas is the betrayer. It seems that the point he is making here is that the disciples, 
just like Judas, are all going to be, in coming weeks, implicated in the betrayal and the abandonment of Jesus. So when the disciples look around and they say, is it I, Lord? Am I the one who betrays you? The subtle answer that I think Matthew would would have us to, to read here is, yes. Yes. All of you are going to betray me. Like the previous story, Judas, he's the chief of the betrayers, but none of you guys are going to be exempt from this. What we'll see next week in, uh, what is it, verses, the following verses, uh, 30 through uh, 36 or so, we see the disciples very vehemently oppose this idea. I'm going to go to the grave with you, Jesus. I will not deny or betray you, Jesus. And then as Jesus walks through moment after moment after moment of his trial and crucifixion, the disciples scatter. That's what Jesus says is going to take place. Is it I, Lord, the disciples ask? In some respects, that answer is yes, it is you. Now, verse 24, Jesus makes a really puzzling comment. He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, we're not going to talk about this tonight, but in the coming weeks, as we, as we consider uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus, like how, how does that fit with God's sovereign plan over all of this? We're going to explore that a little bit more in the coming weeks, because that can be challenging, but I did just wanted to make you aware of that. Verse 26, watch this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of uh, of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives." Jesus takes this supper that they have taken umpteenth times and does something completely new with it. As if this was the first of the day of the unleavening. Jesus introduces a new start. He expands the meaning of the supper, the meaning of the Passover itself. He says, take this bread. This bread now is my body. Take this cup. This cup now is my blood. We're intended to see here that Jesus is leading a new Passover The Passover marks the turning of a new year. Maybe we're intended to see that Jesus is making use of this new chapter. This is a new covenant being introduced by my blood. And in doing this, Jesus gives his church a Passover supper. Jesus gives his church a new and better, a deeply meaningful practice instituted and commanded by Jesus. The Lord's Supper, Communion Eucharist. All right, kids, I've got a question for you. It's gonna be on the screen. All right, you ready? This comes from the New City Catechism. This is question number 46. So hopefully you've seen this before. Maybe you're familiar with this, all right? You can read it on the screen. It's also on your kids' worship guide, a little fill-in-the-blank action there for you. Ready? I'm gonna ask you the question, kids. I want you to read it back. Maybe adults, you can sort of help them a little bit. Kids, what is the Lord's Supper? Excellent work, Hannah. Very good. What is the Lord's Supper? Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him. So kids, just like we said a couple of moments ago, Jesus gives us this meal, this bread and this juice so that we can remember what he did for us by dying for our sins. All right, this comes from the TCGS statement of faith. This is a little bit more of a built out answer. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna ask you to read this. This is what our statement of faith says. What is the Lord's Supper? 
The Lord's Supper is the divinely given act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and the cup, which strengthens the believer's faith, renews his or her commitment to Christ and his people, marks the church off from the world as one body, and anticipates the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ever since this night, ever since the events of Matthew 26, every Christian everywhere has practiced this meal. If you're new to the faith, new to Christianity, this can be a strange thing that we do. But in taking this supper, we are being invited to remember what Jesus has done as the crucified servant king. This new Passover dinner, we call the Lord's Supper because in this supper, we see the Lord's heart for his people. But let's not breeze too quickly what's happening in the story. I can't help but think that there's power here knowing what Jesus is saying and where he's saying it. He's at table eating with the very one who would betray him. He's amongst his closest friends who would abandon him. And he says to them, this is my body broken for y'all's sin. And in verse 29, look what he says. He says, I will drink this drink with you again in the kingdom. With you, Jesus says. To the ones who have just been implicated in this abandonment and betrayal, Jesus says, this body and this blood is gonna be broken for you and you and I will eat this one day again in the kingdom. Jesus shares a table with his betrayers, those he knows will abandon him. And then don't miss this, verse 30. He steps out of the garden where he will be betrayed and arrested. He knows he will be taken before kings. He knows he's gonna be mocked in court. He's gonna endure unspeakable suffering. And what does verse 30 say? Jesus goes out singing. Because it was for joy that Jesus endured the suffering that was put before him, the scriptures tell us. So we take the supper. Every Christian takes the supper. This is what we are to do in light of this passage, is to, to solemnly remember what happened this night and to take this supper. At the supper, we're given bread and the fruit of the vine. The broken bread viscerally reminds us of Jesus' broken body. The poured juice reminds us of Jesus' shed blood. We see, we remember that Christ died for us. And there's three steps, maybe three pieces that we could say from this passage. As we take the supper, let us first do this. We're to ask, is it I, Lord? The way Matthew constructs the story, the way he interweaves the story of the woman anointing Jesus just prior to this with the disciples, Matthew leaves us hanging in the air. Yes, yes, it is you. Matthew wants us to see it is all of them and it is all of us. Your sin required God himself to become a man and die. And when we see these elements before us, we are being confronted with our own frailty and sin and our infidelity and our all too similar tendencies that the disciples have. All the knuckleheadery and the boneheadedness of the disciples runs deep in our chest as well. We are sinners whose sin deserves death. But at this same scene, we see Jesus sharing table with his betrayers, offering his broken body and blood to them, saying, my body is broken and my blood being shed. You find forgiveness. And so we ask, is it I, Lord? And the answer is yes. And we respond by partaking of Jesus's body and blood with thanksgiving. There's no sin that disqualifies us from Christ. The, the, the only thing, the only qualification that you need is to own that you are not qualified to go to the table. Our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, 
our sins and those sins against us, all of them are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb and the angel of death passes over us. And so we partake of the bread and cup with thanksgiving and with a this is too good to be true kind of attitude. And we do it collectively. That's one thing that we can often miss is that when we talk about taking the supper, we take the supper. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 10 that we take from the same loaf. Rich, poor, beautiful, ugly, stinky feet. (laughs) All of us, we take from the same loaf because the same body, the same Christ, the same blood is made available to each of us. And whenever we take the supper and we see the juice that comes from the same bottle and the bread that comes from the same loaf, we're reminded that Jesus makes us a family. This is a family worship gathering in more ways than one. Every Sunday is a family worship gathering. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we are viscerally, visibly, physically reminded of that. I was reading a book. Um, I'm going to be reading a book with a couple of college students this semester. I was reading it to sort of prepare for that. It's a book called Rediscover Church. And, and at the close of the opening chapter, he says, look, he says, over the, over the last year, we've learned that you can stream sermons. You can podcast your favorite preachers. You can, you can Spotify all of your favorite worship stuff. We are in a world that is obsessed with making everything digital, but there's one thing that can't be made digital. This is flesh and blood. This is real. As real as Jesus' broken body and shed blood for you, for me, for us. As real as the forgiveness of sins as we have in Christ. As real as the blood of Jesus that unites us. So we partake together of Jesus' body and blood with thanksgiving. And then I love this. And we go out with him. We follow him, taking up our crosses behind our crucified king, singing. We go out renewed, refreshed, having re-encountered the good news of the gospel. We follow our Savior out the door to our mundane jobs that we hate, to our disappointments, to our difficult circumstances. We go out taking that cross just as Christ did, singing. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to do exactly that. We're going to follow all three of these steps. In just a moment, I'm going to invite everyone to just kind of pause where you are and, and ask, is it I, Lord? And take a moment to just reflect, to reflect on your sins, to reflect on those ways in which you have betrayed and abandoned Jesus. And then you're going to come forward when you, when you, when you feel ready to do that. You're going to come forward. And you're going to take a deep sigh of relief that looks like taking bread and juice to be reminded of what Christ has done. And then after that, we're going to sing in Christ alone. We're going to go out singing, being reminded that we have a Savior who knows us, who loves us, who bled for us, and who showed us how to walk carrying crosses. I'm going to pray to conclude this time. And then after the post-sermon prayer, I'm going to, I'm going to read a little bit that's taken from these scriptures. And then you can pray and come up as you feel ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray that it would pierce our hearts. Pray that as we take the supper tonight that we would uh, just be moved by the beauty of what it represents. We pray for these kids that as we go to dinner and, these, and go, to, go home and uh, put these kids to bed and they ask, tell me again about the bread and the juice, mommy and daddy. We, we pray that you give us words to explain that and that you would use this to, to lead them uh, to belief one day. We pray for our church and pray that as we take the supper, it would unite us, that we would we would see each other in all of our, the weird things that each of us do and all of the sins that we have against each other. May the, the blood and body of Jesus have a uniting effect that brings us and draws us together. 